Good morning again, and I want to welcome you to Evergreen. Uh, my name is Rick. I serve as one of the pastors on the, on the leadership team here, and uh, we are going through the book of uh, the Bible, looking at parables that Jesus taught through the summer series. Not all of them. There's 43 of them, but we picked select ones that we're going through. And the first week, Brad, our youth pastor, just left, talked about how to build a spiritual house one brick at a time. Last week, Lydia talked about being ready for Christ's return. How do we get ourselves ready? And today, we're going to look about once upon a time, what matters most to God? Now, you might think, I think I know. It's the greatest commandment or this, but we're going to look at uh, some scripture this morning on that. But I want to start with a story that kind of sets the stage for kind of perspective on what transpired in our story. And that was two years ago, uh, my wife and I and uh, Brad and, and a few others went to Guatemala to do a scout trip with a village that we were looking to uh, partner with, which we since have adopted uh, in Chacalte. And it was a long journey, two days. One day was to fly from Portland to Guatemala City. Then we took uh, like an eight-hour bus ride through windy roads to a town called Nebach, which is a high elevation we spent the night before we head up to the village. And we were tired from a long day of travel. We were in our hotel. Uh, we got after, after dinner to our rooms to um, prepare. It was a time change and all that. And I uh, went to sleep on a hard bed, mushy pillow, uh, which didn't bode well for the rest of the, the time there. The next morning around 5.30, 5.45, I was wakened and looked out the window, realized the window was closed, but didn't do much of a, wasn't much of a buffer between us and the noise outside. Have you been in situations like that? where it's just, it's more decorative. And outside our window, one floor below, was an assembling, assembling of a marching band that, that impromptu decided to have a practice session under our hotel window. Now, I'm not a morning person to begin with. A couple of hour time change, and this was not a good recipe for success. Throw into that, um, the trumpets are going off, what I normally appreciate as a trumpeteer, but now is not with the drums. And some miscellaneous fireworks that were left over from the county fair the week before. I look out the window, and they're all happy. They're practicing, getting ready for this thing, uh, and I am not. I am greatly annoyed, and the noise was irritating to me because I didn't understand the reason why they were congregating outside my window, and I would have selected a place a couple blocks down the road. And I asked myself the question, or may I ask you, have you been that neighbor? I won't ask which one you were. Well, you were the one who made the call, said, can you turn it down? Or you got the call that says, what are you guys doing? Um, but not understanding what's going on really sets the stage of what, how we respond to situations. We've all been in situations where your neighbors are having a great celebration, and someone's trying to sleep, and all I can think of is how inconsiderate. When the people on the other side are like, oh, we're having a great graduation party, or a baby's come, or whatever the case may be, that we don't see the perspective of what's really going on, we can miss it. And that was me. As I realized that we're going to go out into, into this town the next day, that morning, and engage with people that we were trying to meet. Um, and not being upset with them was something I had to work on that morning. Well, in these two stories we're going to read this morning about Pharisees and tax collectors being annoyed that Jesus spent time with lost sinners, tax collectors, those that had bad reputation in the community. And especially when he turned their lostness to being found in celebration. So we're going to read uh, Luke 15, uh, verse 1 through 10. And it's a story about the sheep, lost sheep, and the lost coin. Let's read together. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Have your kids ever muttered? (laughs) This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost sheep! I tell you, in that same way, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I have found my lost coin! In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Big idea today. What's important to God is going after every lost person until he or she is found and then celebrating the good news with others. These Pharisees didn't appreciate Jesus choosing to celebrate sinners who were found and associating himself with those that didn't live up to their religious standards. They weren't God's standards. They were their religious standards. They created man-made rules of how people should approach God and who could, but Jesus obviously didn't live by their rules. Yes, Jesus made a habit of celebrating with all the wrong people, and those who were right thought it was inappropriate. So in these two stories, we learn about what God celebrates and why. A sheep is lost. How? Those who have studied sheep, they wander aimlessly, and they wander off often. It's their nature. They don't have direction. They'll follow each other to get lost. And so Jesus is using something of, of, a, of a practice in those days, being shepherded with sheep, but also an animal that was prone to wander. Three stories, we get an inside view of what Jesus values and celebrates. Lost people being found, and most importantly, we're invited to participate in his party as well. First up, the setup. Jesus is responding to his fans and his critics. He's got an audience of protagonists and antagonists for you literature folks. Protagonists are these tax collectors, and what's interesting about that is not It'd be comparable to an IRS, but much worse, because these were men and women who would have have aligned themselves with the Roman government and said, we'll collect taxes for you. I'll make sure that our people get them, but we'll skim off the top. And and so they they were considered betrayers because they would sell out their people for profit. And so they're wealthy people, not liked in their community, but wealthy and tied with the Roman government, yet practicing with their ethnic group. And then you have sinners. Definition of sinner is someone who had broken God's law, who had neglected to obey him in some way, shape, or form, or had distanced himself from him. So sinners incorporates all of us and all, of us, all people in those times. And they would have been seen as people like, well, they can't come close to God because they have a reputation of being a tax collector, a sinner. They have to do certain things in order for God to receive them. And then you have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those who studied the Old Testament and knew all the rules of when to fast, when to pray, what to do on certain days, and they did it religiously. But their hearts were not in the right place. They were wealthy elite, and they were offended by Jesus' association with sinners. They wanted religious purity on their terms. They wanted a God in a box, but he didn't fit in it. 
don't know if it struck you, but it struck me that sinners and tax collectors, those of bad reputation, were the ones Jesus said, come on, let's have lunch together. Let's hang out. Come close. And it says they drew near to listen to him. And those who were religiously righteous in their own minds, they were ticked off by Jesus, God. They didn't like how God did things. And he created rules for people. And I thought, why would that be? Because Jesus didn't judge. Anyone who would come near, he said, come with me. Come close. And to invite someone into your home meant they hung out for hours. So Jesus wasn't just like a, a contact. Like, okay, great, come to my house. Hang out. Let's talk. Let's get to know each other. In the course of a relationship, they were willing to listen. So the important question is, how does God view sinners? How does he view them? Well, I heard a story that I thought was kind of shed some light. A friend of mine, Scott, is a paramedic. And he had told me numerous stories when we had traveled on a team together of coming upon situations where there's multi-car accidents and crashes with fatalities and injured and so forth. And, and the types of people that come to those scenes. First of all, you have the on, curious onlookers. People are curious. They don't offer anything. They're maybe concerned about a loved one or kind of fascinated by what happened. How does this all happen? Second, you have the, the police, the investigators, the fire department. They're trying to secure a scene from getting worse and begin to investigate what transpired, what led to this. And then you have the paramedic who jumps in and begins to stabilize those who have been injured, bandage up the wounded, assess priority of care. And then you have people like Joel Peterson, who's a, a chaplain for the fire department in our county, jumps in and begins to offer crisis care counseling to those who have, lo- have experienced loss or have someone who's injured. And I find it interesting, when there's an accident, the paramedic and the chaplain go right through. Everyone wants them. Everyone needs them. They're unbiased. They offer no commentary. They jump right in with their skills to assess and help where they can. They don't make any comments like, why are we driving too fast? Who was in the passenger seat without a seatbelt? All they do is they're all in to say, I care for you, and I'm going to give you all my attention. Isn't that what we want? Kind of picture of God's heart. No judging, just, I mean, I'm after you. I want to be with you. I think God's view of sinners is like that of Joel Peterson. Call to a car crash scene. I was at a banquet one time with him and, uh, where he was being honored, and several fire and police personnel came up to me, and they said, do you know him? I said, well, I, he goes to my church, but I'm here to celebrate him. He goes, you don't know what he does. There's times we as police officers have seen things, and we go to him for help. And he didn't look at our life and where we've messed up because he knows our family situation. He just offers care. I thought, what a great picture of God's heart for us. Just unadulterated, undefiled, just pure help. Secondly, God searches for the lost individual. There's a shepherd and the sheep in this story, and there's a personal involvement. To the rich elites, the religious leaders, sheep were a replaceable asset. Ah, who didn't lose 1% return on investments now and then? You got 100, lose one? Ah, not so bad. You know, 5, 10, that might be more to be concerned about. But a shepherd who loves his sheep? Uh-uh. It's personal to him. He says, I, I, I love that one too. I will go after that. A commitment to seek one lost. Ignorance and foolishness would have been the idea that the Pharisees would have had, but the shepherd, no, no, no. 
Interesting in the commentary talking about the attitude of this lost sheep. It just says that the sheep got lost. It wandered off. If it was written by an American author, it would probably be like, okay, who's to blame? Who slept in the job? We want to assess who's responsible. We need to investigate where the lapse was in security or care. But in a Middle Eastern culture where the shame based, it's, we're not going to shame anyone. The sheep, the most important thing is the sheep was lost and it needs to be found. And that's important, not how or why. If a shepherd is concerned about one missing sheep, imagine the idea of the celebration that Jesus references when one sinner turns to God. It's a big deal to him. It's interesting to note, but both in the story of the coin and the sheep, Jesus uses the lowest whole number, one. Every one matters. Every coin matters. Every sheep matters. You matter. Though you may be one of billion, seven billion people, you matter. He would go look for you among seven billion. He looks for the ones you love. It's not easy to look in this whole process of how God finds us. Each story is different if we were to poll people in this room. This past year, we had a Japanese exchange student in our house uh, who was introverted, an introvert, and from Japan, a very reserved country. And uh, we saw the need for it. We thought, we could do this. It'll be costly to us in some way, and we'll grow through the process. And it was a wonderful experience. We learned a lot uh, we, uh, about the culture. We felt it was good for our family, but there was also challenges. If you've had exchange students, there's, there's adjustments especially having a long-term guest in your house that's not family. It's like, when, how do you live your life? And at some point, the hair comes down and you begin to live normally and you're like, I wonder what they think of us and all that stuff. And uh, it was difficult for her because she's reserved from Japanese culture. Americans are not. She's an introvert and three out of five sachets in our home are not. <laughs> Conversations were always loud at dinner. At her house, she said they, didn't, they hardly talked at dinner. They just looked at each other with her family. They're all quiet. And we'd have to accommodate her when she would go on excursions. We'd have to, okay, make sure someone's home. Or if we went somewhere, we would include her. Or if she went somewhere else, it was a constant negotiation. And it, it took effort. And uh, at the end of our time, we, uh, we talked to her. She had joined us each night, halfway through the year, in our evening ritual of praying with our kids before bed. And she would join us, although she would not participate. She just wanted to listen. And I think she stayed long enough so we could get to give the hugs afterwards with our kids, especially for my younger ones from her, the affection. But the week before we left, she left, um, we asked her if she wanted to pray. And she said, sure, I'll pray. And she offered a lovely prayer of things that she had heard us say over the, the previous months. And she prayed them back to, to God for us, blessing for our family, our nation, our leaders, and such. And it was a neat time. And she, I, I said, what would you say to someone in your shoes coming in next year? What would you describe about America? And obviously through our lens of what we've experienced at Evergreen, she said, well, that Americans believe in God, and they believe that God is good. For agnostic who didn't believe in anything, kind of Shinto Buddhist, I thought it was, um, she reflected well what she experienced here. And she returned back to Japan, and we felt like our time is over, and we've sent messages, but we realized Jesus is still seeking after her. She's gone home. But the, the role of Jesus of pursuing those that are lost will not stop. We had a season of life where we got to be with her and we did our best to 
not to, to doctrinate her teacher, just explain what we believe and why. And we pray for her, and kind of that feeling, God, I want to remind you in case you forget, and she's important to us. And then, of course, studying this passage, realize God knows. He knows exactly how important she is. That he would go after her if she was the only one. We know our neighbors and, and get to know many of them and enjoy them. Um, but there are some neighbors we don't know. Some are not as friendly. Some don't have kids in our age, and some are to themselves. And it's easy for us to engage with those that are nice to us, that like us, that have kids that play, that, that say hi. But I'm challenged by going beyond that to those that we don't know. There's a family down the street that you know, they have heated arguments in the evenings and early morning on the way to work. Sometimes we've, Elizabeth and I have been doing our devotions, we've got bring peace at home. I don't know what's, what the strife is being caused by. But Lord, would you help us get to know them? We don't know them. We've never been in their house. They've never been in our house, and we'd like to make, uh, they're lost too, and they need Jesus. Rejoicing over return. That is why we regularly in our services invite people to come to know Christ. We don't know where they are, but if someone's lost and comes to Christ, we want to say, it's a place to do that. Also, to make the next step and say, I decided to follow Jesus. I want to take a step towards water baptism. If that's you, you followed Christ, but you have not made the decision to do that, we encourage you to do August 14th is our next baptism. We'd love to celebrate with you. Thirdly, God values the lost. He seeks the lost, but only values. You got a woman and a lost coin. Attention getting. You notice when you, when you lose something by the degree of the response to that. Have you ever lost keys? Anyone lost keys? Okay. Why don't we start with the hands up and put your hands down if you haven't lost keys. Wallet? Anyone lose wallet? Smartphone? And didn't have Find My Phone app on? A child. We were in Washington, D.C. about three weeks ago at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and doing the da da over Noah. Oh, no, there's a lot of people. Quick, two that way, two that way. You know, it's not the, the level where you want to scream for help, but it was, kids, rally around. Let's go look. And, of course, you know, he's near the, the, the store, the stuff where he should be, uh, but not without us. And uh, the heart races and the pounding of concern that we could have lost something. We may not find it. Well, this woman has ten coins. They're called drachmas. They were a silver coin, the head of uh, the emperor. And uh, each of those coins was a, a day's wage. And for a woman who was viewed as a third-class citizen, she had very little rights. And those ten pieces are, are in today's worth about $75. seven fifty each was a day's wage. And scholars say that what they, she probably would have done is had a headdress that she would have kept her money in her headdress so it was with her at all time, never to leave it at home where someone could steal it. And perhaps in the midst of doing things around the home, she, one falls out. And what is her response? She goes after it. Interesting, because the Pharisees were money-focused because religion was big business. Jesus uses a sheep and a coin, both items used in temple worship. Families would have brought a sheep to church or the temple for sacrifice for their sins. They would have brought coins as offerings to give, things that would have been important to God and to religious leaders. 
But if it was someone else's, they wouldn't have cared. In fact, their heart even went towards those people. We don't care about people that are far from God. We don't care about their stuff. All we care about is us. And shows that the divisiveness of their heart. They were committed to finding the valuable lost. She leaves all behind. Everything's interrupted. The shepherd leaves 99 sheep on an open country air, air, plot of land, does not take them back to a pen to say, take care of these, I'm after. Immediately drops what he's doing, leaves them in an open country where they could also wander off, but it's so important that he gets the one that he says, I'll leave these and risk these 99 to get the one that's far off that I cannot see. And the woman, she drops what she's doing, she's probably a little bit of oil, lights a lamp in a dark house and begins to sweep the house. Not like I do, really quickly, to get things done quickly when there's a spill. No, with a dirt floor, she begins to brush through the dirt and comb it for one tiny coin. Any appointments, any work is not important because I need to find this one coin, one-tenth of my worth. In that culture, there would have been not a lot of currency. Most people would barter things. They would use olive oil to trade for bread or a sheep for another different animal. And so there was a bartering system, so coins were very rare and very precious, especially to the poor. And a woman like this was a third-class citizen. She stops what she's doing to find it. And then she finds it and calls her friends. Fourthly, God celebrates finding lost people. People celebrate finding lost people. Rejoicing over the return. God is talking about more than the sheep and a coin in this story. He's talking about lost people being found by him. And being found is called repentance. And repentance is just another way of basically saying reorienting ourselves back towards God. Whatever direction we're going, we say, God, I'm going back with you and your direction. I will follow you. I will surrender. At the end it says, how great it is for one sinner who repents and turns back to God. It means a redirection and reorienting oneself towards God. And the response, all heaven erupts in celebration. And it's not a group birthday where like, oh, God says, let's wait for a thousand people to say yes, and then we'll have this cool, major group birthday. The Bible says that the angels celebrate. And why do angels celebrate? Because they celebrate whatever God celebrates. And when Jesus says, it's time to celebrate, one has come. Everything stops in heaven. And there becomes this eruption of joy and celebration over each person who says, I was lost, but I found and I'm turning to God. Heaven gets interrupted constantly by the celebration of those who once were far from God, lived on their own, to those who said, yes, I understand what Jesus did for me. I surrender, and I am found. The Pharisees would not have understood this because the irony of the story is Jesus says, suppose one of you tax collectors, I mean, you, you Pharisees, were a shepherd and lost a sheep. And what you don't understand is they would have scoffed and we don't have sheep. We're rich. If we had sheep, we would hire someone else to take care of them. Jesus is saying, exactly. You don't understand. What does it have something that you value lost? He says, suppose one of your sheep, we've never been a shepherd. We would never sleep that low. Suppose one of you lost a coin. Ah, oh, we could take care of that. 
Jesus is trying to say, hey, let me show you how I view each person, each one of you, that if you were lost, I'd go after you. I'd stop the presses. I would stop what I'm doing and head out after because I love and I care. They believe that they were right with God because of their efforts. But in order to be found by God, a person must recognize and agree with God that he or she is lost. And there's no degree of being lost. I used to think that when I was younger, oh, I wasn't as bad or as lost as so-and-so who really did some things with their parents. And the reality is you're lost or you're not. Read the story of unbroken, a plane going down and being left in a dinghy, wandering a thousand kilometers. Or as I was as a kid with my sister one time, we were in a park and we got lost and we were about 50 yards from the entrance. There's no degree of lostness. We either are lost in our own way or are found by Christ and made home, brought home. He also mentions that he would leave the 99 who didn't think they need to repent to follow the one. And why that's interesting is these 99 other sheep didn't think they need to repent talking about people. The Bible says that there's none righteous, not even one. And so for these 99 sheep to think that they were well off and on their own, that they didn't need to repent when we're all guilty, Jesus is saying, I don't want to leave you guys who think you got it all to go for the one who's, who's willing to be found. I'll leave it all behind. The story takes place as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem where he will eventually be sentenced to death, die, and rise again. And he's preparing, he's talking about the kind of things that he would do to seek out. I grew up in a religious home. We read the Bible and prayed. And because I surrendered my life to Christ at a young age, I didn't do as many bad things in my own view as others. And so I thought that Jesus didn't have to pay as much for me, which is stupid. It was pride. Grew up in a very legalistic church that was very outwardly, uh, outward actions were more important than the heart. So if we looked right, we did the right things, that was championed over assessing whether someone's heart was right. And then my senior year of high school, I, I was in band and I started getting tempted by friends who were at school. And I started, I still was involved in church, youth group, choir, activities with but inside my heart was shifting. I made a lie to my parents about things that I did and where I went with friends. And I had this duplicit, hypocritical heart that I tried to do both things well, and none of them worked. I was bad at trying to be a follower of Christ, and I was bad at trying to be rebellious because I had a conscience. Worst case scenario. Trying to love God and have a conscience and try to do things, and when you know, it's, it wasn't until after my graduation my parents sat me down, and I had a praying mom who said, Rick, um, I'm disappointed. Uh, God has showed us things that you've done that you haven't told us. I'm like, how do you respond to that? I've been caught. So I wept and cried and I repented. And I realized that I had wandered off and Jesus found me again. And that's probably several times in my life that's happened. But I remember shortly after we got in church and we were singing the old hymn, Amazing Grace, so sweet the sound, to save the wretch like me, I was once lost blind, but now I see. I'm lost and now I'm found. I remember singing for that song after the season with my parents, and it was the first time in my life I recognized that I was the wretch. I was completely lost, 
and Jesus came looking for me again. I was not like, as bad, I was lost. And now that song means so much to me because it's a testimony of how great God is, that he was patiently waiting for me. Letting me run the course until he knocked on the door of my heart and I said yes to him. In fact, as a result of that, with good leadership in my youth group, our youth pastor had a heart for people and he said, you know, once you've been found, you need to join the search and rescue for others. If you love God and you love the things that he loves and you're going to pursue and encourage and find ways to encourage people to be found as well. At Evergreen, uh, you may have heard it shared, our mission is simple, to help people find and follow Jesus. It's a simple. For those who are lost to find him and for those who have found him to begin to follow him on a regular basis. It's Luke 15. Jesus going after the lost. Help lost people discover that Jesus is for them, welcomes them, and wants a relationship. This past week, uh, I was on the, I'm on the Ever, uh, Evergreen softball team, and we had our playoff. And uh, I was at third base, right when the game started, and the third baseman on the opposing team stopped and said, Rick, are you Rick? And I said, yeah. He goes, our sons go to preschool together. And, oh, we love it. It's been a wonderful experience. He said, and my daughter went to your soccer camp, and it really was amazing for her. She felt loved and cared for, affirmed by the coaches. Can we talk later? I'd like to get together with you and maybe talk about doing some coaching together. I'm like, this is, you're on the opposing team. This is like a deep conversation at third base. But Anne says, love your community, love your, your neighbor until they ask why. Don't preach, don't condemn, don't judge. Love people until they ask why. I thought that's, that's a great way to live our lives. Serve people the way God would. We're launching an E2 site in Tannisborn, Orenco. The express purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus on the east side of town that wouldn't come this way. In fact, one of the ways we're doing that is to uh, July 22nd, next Friday night, Christmas in the park. We invite you to come with your families to just meet people, get to know them, be kind. In the food bank, we serve 40-plus families per week out here after this next service, after the service. In each of these families, there are numbers of children, and each of them are important to God. Jesus loves each one of them. So I'd ask would there be those around, among you here that would say, I could give two hours twice a month to go out there and serve, distribute, get to know people, and serve people who are dear to God's heart? We have two mission teams going in October. Taking sign-ups now, we invite you to take vacation time off with a purpose to go. Leave behind your comforts of home, the hundreds of people that meet here this, every week, for three days in Mexico, the 13th through the 15th of October, to build a house for a needy family or for a week in Guatemala, where we're going to build a classroom, teach kids that they can know God, visit sponsor kids. You won't be comfortable. You'll have your needs met. But you have to find people who are lost and say, we'll come us alongside you and serve you. As I read this, I, I've been stirred because I, I tend to gravitate towards comfort. And I realize I don't want to get comfortable and live with an attitude that only people like me matter. Because God loves all the world. Education doesn't matter. Bank accounts, wealth, no wealth, culture. Jesus died for all. And I've talked to people and they said, well, you know, I don't feel that. I don't feel that tug. 
uh, I pursue God differently. I'll try to find him on my own, thinking. Oh, I will resist God. And I realize you can ignore God but as he pursues you, but you can't hide. The psalmist figured this out in Psalm 139. I love how, how descriptive it is. He says, Oh, Lord, you've examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest ocean, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask darkness to hide me and light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. You matter to God more than you realize. He says, I made you. I put you together. I know your thoughts before you say them. If you were to try to hide, like my son Noah, one time we were out hiking and he ran to a tree with his back to me and he covered his eyes and said, Dad, you can't find me. He thought he was lost, but he was in plain sight. So you can run from God. You can ignore him, but you cannot hide. He will continue to pursue you vigorously. So I hope today we're learning that God's heart for you is relentless pursuit. When you're lost and you're far from him, there's nothing you can do to clean yourself up to say, God, okay, if I do a little better, maybe, no. Jesus welcomed the sinners, the tax collectors, Come hang with me. Learn from me. But it's those who've been with God a while that sometimes get stuck in their ways and like, God, you're, you're making me uncomfortable. Jesus said, I was uncomfortable. He pursues us without precondition because he loves. Our response is to agree with him that we're spiritually lost and need him. Jesus was on the road to the cross and he knew what was ahead for him. That He said, in order to solve this problem of separation between God and man, I had to come. I had to walk to earth. People know what, knew what God was like. Demonstrate love, healing, power. And to go and die on the cross, a brutal death, alone. Rise again to have power over death, disease, and sickness. And earn the right to offer free salvation. So there's some, several action steps I invite you to look at. Evaluate. Where do you see yourself in these parables? Do you recognize that you are loved by God unconditionally and continually? Or have you been around and kind of stuck and feeling kind of grumpy about, why does all these people, far from God, why do they have to come so easily? It was difficult for me. Two, repent. Is there an area of your life that needs to be found and rescued by Jesus? Maybe you know him, but there's areas of your heart that have been kind of heartened towards him or others. And thirdly, how can you make room in your schedule and plans to join helping people find and follow Jesus? Tell your story, get baptized. Jesus paid it all. When I lived in Los Angeles, I worked at, at, at a bank in Beverly Hills, and we had wealthy clients. And one of my clients, the most, 
one of the more special ones was a guy named Isaac who was um, an older gentleman who was a jet propulsion lab engineer, well-read, and he was a survivor of the Holocaust. I remember seeing on his arm one day the number that was tattooed there, and I was intrigued by his story, and I never met anyone like that before, so I, I, and our birthday's one day apart, so we had this friendship that we talked about our birthdays. And I said, Isaac, can I hear your story sometime? He said, Rick, it's too painful. I could never tell you the story. I can't revisit that. And I said, I, I respectfully understand. But as our relationship grew, we could talk about my faith in Christ as a believer and, and his agnostic understanding and philosophical ideas of, of, of how life works. He says, I'll, I'll give you, I, I have a video that was produced by the Schindler's Project that Spielberg put together before the movie to get the stories of many people who were survivors. He goes, if you want to watch this, it's about four hours long. I'd understand if you don't want to or don't finish, that's okay. And then we could talk afterwards. I said, yes, that would be an honor and a privilege for me to, to watch this. And I heard the stories of things that are unimaginable. He was brought on by an SS soldier who picked him out and said, I need some help. Carry my bags. Do what I say. Don't cry. Don't complain. Don't think, do anything to bring attention to yourself and you might live. And so he had to witness things with this officer that were just so tragic and left him wondering how God could do anything, allow this. In our conversations, we would talk about why is there evil in the world? How can a loving God do this? And all my best apologetics couldn't muster up a tried answer to give to him to explain this away sufficiently. And I said, you know, we're getting married. Would you be interested in coming to our wedding? He says, Rick, it would be difficult. When I grew up as a Jewish boy in Poland, Easter is the day when the Christians would tell us that we were Christ killers. And sometimes I got beat up. Easter is the worst day of the year for us to go out. So I have a hard time going to church. I hope you understand. I said, I honestly do. He showed up at our wedding. He said, it's a gift to you of our relationship. Before we, a few months later, we um, got a call to go, to go to Everett, Washington in a new assignment with the church. And uh, we knew, we announced to our friends that we were leaving. And, and Isaac invited Elizabeth and I over for dinner. And he said, we would love to have you guys over for dinner before you leave. It'd be our delight to have dessert. And we talked about our families. I introduced Elizabeth to his wife and caught up. And then the questions started camp coming up again about evil and God's love. And how do you reconcile those things? And I could tell part of it was his, I want to know if someone could give me an answer. And part of it was his messing with us. Because he, he thought we were kind of confident in our faith, but thought it was very weak. And remember he asked the question of Elizabeth as he, she engaged, well, what about this? What about suffering? What about evil and God's justice? And she answered one time, one question. She said, Isaac, I can't answer those questions. None of us can. To any satisfaction, because we don't know God that well. But what I do know is that I was lost as a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, undeserving of grace towards me. And I received that gift. And that's, that's good enough for me. I, I can't answer any more questions. Well, that's pretty good. And we finished our conversation two weeks later as we were about to leave. Isaac said, I want to have coffee with you. He comes in and he said, Rick, I've been haunted by what Elizabeth said about her faith in Jesus. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I've never met anyone so convinced by so little and feel like they, and look like they believe it. I said, oh? He said, I, 
I've, I've debated people. I have all these questions, and I'm looking for truth. And for nights, I couldn't think, I couldn't escape the fact that she was convinced that Jesus was real and loved her. Because I want to tell you now, before we leave, that I believe too now. I'm surprised. Shocked. And I realized for 76 years, Jesus has been pursuing Isaac in a relationship and didn't give up. I would have thought never in my wildest dreams would someone experience that kind of hardship in life would be able to be reached by Jesus. He said, I want to tell you. I mean, I go to church, but I believe in Jesus, and I want you to know. I thought, I could join in this celebration of one who was lost and now is found and is relieved after 76 years of questions. God found him. And if you're lost today, I'm going to invite you in a minute to surrender. And if you know lost people, I say pray and don't give up. Jesus doesn't give up. He's left behind most of us to pursue those that we may forget or think are not worthy. Jesus, I'm after it. All of them. Every culture, every language. You as one person out of seven billion, I've got enough resources to get after you. Pray and don't give up. He goes after lost sheep, lost coins. Is you're more valuable than that. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before this morning. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you for the story that says you are relentless. You are not judging. And as we're praying, uh, I want to give an opportunity. If you're here this morning, you're saying, Rick, I was lost. I am lost. I want to get right with God. God's been pursuing me. I've ignored him. But today I want to surrender. If that's you, I'm just going to simply ask you to lift your eyes towards me so ours can meet. And just raise your hand and say, Rick, yeah, I want to acknowledge that today. I lost and I'm coming home. Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Okay. For the rest of us, God, we pray that our hearts will be soft to joining in the search and rescue for others. And that we pray and not give up because you don't give up on seeing the lost came to a place where they're found by Jesus. We thank you for your love and your grace.